Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, career coach one and author of Win Without Competing. I'm Dr. Arlene. Welcome to my show. I will teach you how to use my Right Fit Method, which will empower you to achieve your career and life goals. My guest today is Virgil Holder, Corporate Director for Recruitment at the prestigious Piedmont Healthcare Corporation in Atlanta. I met Virgil by phone in the year 2000, which marked the beginning of our professional relationship. He was the manager of employment at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, founded by Danny Thomas. Virgil became my client. Later in the show, Virgil and I will talk about my right fit method and its impact on how he conducts his searches. Virgil, in 1984, began his career in the scientific arena at St. Jude. Virgil, why did you become a scientist, and what did you accomplish in the lab? Well, Arlene, I... um I had always been interested in science in general, and in, even in junior high and high school, those subjects interested me, and I, I, I did well in those subjects. It, it lent well to my natural desire to be organized, and, um, and also I was always very good at memorizing things, and in science it's always good to be able to memorize all that information and data. What um, about your early childhood? Did anyone influence you at all? Well, I think um, my mother also was a very, very studious person, and uh, she was always interested in learning uh, about why things worked the way they worked. And uh, and she instilled in me and also my brother. My, she raised my brother and I um, as a single parent. Uh, she singled, She instilled that desire to learn and also very... Uh, good work ethic in us, uh, the desire to to accomplish something, um, to um, to always do the best you can, and in science it, that that appeared to be a place I could I could excel, and uh, I always wanted to be uh, you know, I, if I could get an A in a class I was going to get an A, um, and so in science I could get A's and sometimes other people couldn't so I, that made me feel successful. <laughs> Okay, so you pursued that which you were good at. Mm-hmm. Did you feel passionate towards science? Um, the work in science, uh, especially at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, once I went there, uh, and I worked with some of the most prominent scientists in the world, because St. Jude is an internationally known institution. And the first eight years there, I worked with um, a scientist and his wife, who also was a scientist, and he probably will eventually get a Nobel Prize. And um, 
I'm happy, I'm, I'm proud that the work that eventually he'll probably get a Nobel Prize for was work that was done while I was there in the lab. I enjoyed it so much that even when I took a vacation, which I loved a vacation, but when I took a vacation, I always was anxious to get back to my job. Tell us a little bit about what you did uh, that relates to the scientist who you believe will get a Nobel Prize so that we can enjoy some of the pleasure that you had in early in your career. Well, um, and I was, you know, quite young when I first went to work in this uh, About how old were you, if you don't mind my I was in my early 20s. So we were talking about in the early 80s. This was really my first real job after college. Um, was it easy at that time to get a job at St. Jude? No, it, it, I don't think it was easy to get a job there. Um, I had actually started teaching high school. I was teaching science in a high school, and um, I liked, I loved teaching, but I somehow. I didn't have your right fit method back then, Arlene. Oh, so you needed you needed my win without competing book and I, the right fit method. I didn't use the right fit method, and I chose a teaching position at a school that was absolutely the wrong fit for me. Why was that? Because I want our listeners to understand the importance of the culture in which we select to work and why we should investigate it prior to accepting a position. Well, when I look back at that, um, and I was very naive, I thought, you know, that I, I thought this was a, would be a great teaching job, but let, but let me tell you why it wasn't. For me, it wasn't the right fit. I grew up um, actually in the inner city in Memphis, Tennessee. I grew up in a very diverse environment with uh, people of varied cultures and varied backgrounds. I went to a high school where I, as a Caucasian, was in the minority. I was probably, this was probably 90% African-American, 10% white school. And I loved it. I had a fabulous time there. Um, I loved my teachers. Everyone was just laid back. There weren't any problems. It was a just a calm school, and everybody loved being there. And I just thought all schools were like that. And um, when I did my student teaching, I did my student teaching also at an inner-city school and had a wonderful experience teaching these uh, children from the same sort of areas that I had come from. But then when I got my teaching uh, opportunity, I was offered a position at what people thought was a prestigious suburban school that was, every, that was, the, that was the ideal school that, you know, that you'd want to go to if you were a student or a teacher. So I thought, wow, here I am coming from the inner city, and that school is offering me a job as a science teacher. So I didn't really even examine it. I didn't think about what really was I getting myself into. Well, you were very young. I was very young, and, I, and I, there wasn't anybody who was coaching me or helping, helping me with thinking about was I getting into the right fit. So I went to teach at this school, and I won't say the name because the school's still there, and it's still as horrible as ever. <laughs> and uh, I, I've only driven past that school one time in the past 30 years. I don't ever want to see it again. 
But when I got there, the kids were from very wealthy families. They got no attention from their parents except to receive money. The kids drove collector item Corvettes, uh, 57 Chevys. The teachers all drove battered up, beat up cars. And the kids were totally out of control, um, chewing tobacco and spitting it in the back of the room and coming to the class drunk. Um, which How did you none of that, that? I experienced none of that with my inner city students. Tell us how, how you managed all of that. Well, it was very unhappy. It was clearly the wrong fit for me. I did because the best you... I could, but I was also teaching chemistry, and the school, even though it claimed to be such a fabulous school, it didn't have facilities that allowed me to do chemistry experiments in my, in my uh, room. So that you didn't ask the questions uh, at the time that you were being interviewed where you would have understood the environment in which you would be working. Right. Am I, I didn't correct, ask, Virgil? Exactly right. I didn't ask the questions. Uh, there were a lot. I've got a whole list of questions I should have asked before I took that job. And I just thought that I was going to get what I needed, but that's not what happened. So, so how been, many years did you spend there before switching to St. Jude? Less than one year. All right. Well, I think I'll, I have to say I must commend you because mm-hmm. quite often people spend many years in an unhappy uh, job situation and become physically ill. So I mm-hmm. think that you were very smart at the young age that you were to understand it was the wrong fit and to move on to a new environment. Well, I, I knew I was very unhappy, and when I had my Christmas break from for the, the for the school for that year, I looked in the newspaper, and at that time St. Jude was advertising this um, research assistant position in the newspaper, and I thought, well, I have the you know I meet the qualifications, and and I've done research in labs from when I was in school, and um, so I called them up, talked to them. Sent in my resume. They called me in, interviewed me, and I I just, I just felt it was right when I got there. You, know, you were comfortable. These were the people that I was comfortable with. I was comfortable with the scientific community. Plus, the scientific community is a very diverse community. I was comfortable with that, and um, they offered me a job the very next day. And so I turned my resignation in, and I taught one week in January, and then started my job at St. Jude and stayed at St. Jude for 25 years. Let's step back a little bit before we go from 84 to 98. Tell us a little bit about the research that you think uh, will be significant in the scientists that you anticipate might receive a Nobel Prize. Well, as I mentioned, the first eight years I worked with a scientist and his wife, and um, they were working on um, oncogenes. So they were identifying um, genes uh, that um, could turn on and cause cancer. So I worked with them for quite a few years on that, and even we were also studying the proteins that were generated by these oncogenes um, and seeing how that affected uh, cancer formation. Uh, the department was called tumor cell biology. And um, 
they also worked with um, something that's called cell cycling, so that when the cell cycles through a life cycle, they were looking at how that what effect that has on cancer. Um, so it just was fascinating work, and um, I stayed with that group for eight years, and. Um, you know, people do say that after seven or eight years or so, people do begin to wonder if this job is all that there is. And so I kind of got into that mood that, you know, I loved what I was doing. I loved the people. I didn't want to leave St. Jude. But I began to think, well, you know, there, there are other labs here too, and, you know, I, I might like to do some different research. Because one thing at St. Jude, if you're in a laboratory working with scientists, you know, you're working in a certain area of research. If you want to do something different, you can look for a different job within the institution. And so that's what I did. So then I, I left them, happily left them. I mean, they, they, I'm, they're still wonderful friends of mine right now. I went to work for a man who was one of the leading um, researchers with the Epstein-Barr virus, which at one time people thought caused uh, the uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, but they don't really think it's involved with that now. But the Epstein-Barr virus is involved with uh, mononucleosis, and it's uh, related to some really strange uh, tumor formations in uh, China and then some other strange diseases that, that this same virus causes. But it's different strains of the virus, and there's nobody understands really why it causes certain diseases in some populations and other diseases in other populations. And if we're all infected with it, why do only a few of us get sick? So I, I worked for six years for that scientist and probably would have even stayed on with him, um, but he decided to leave St. Jude and move on to another institution. So when he left, I began to think, well, and I went on for a year or so with a different scientist um, who was a new faculty member and was helped him establish his lab, and he was working on telomerase, which is uh, um, the telomerase gene is what turns on, uh, it causes uh, the chromosomes to begin to nip off as we get older. So the telomerase nips off the, the ends of the chromosomes and we age. And so the theory was if you could turn off that activity, people wouldn't age. So we worked on that, but sadly when you start turning it off, people get, well, people, we didn't do it on people, but sadly when organisms... You did it on animals then? Yeah, well... It, it, you work on cells in culture first. But when you turn off the telomerase gene, they, things tend to become cancerous. So that's not the, the fountain. The solution. No, no, that doesn't Now, they're still working on it. A lot of people are still working on it. But it was during that time period I began to think about, well, you know, I don't want to – I I had at that time 15 years in, in research at St. Jude – I had a wonderful reputation. I felt with my coworkers, uh, I was known pretty well as someone who was easy to get along with, and I was a go-to person in the labs and helping new people in the institution get settled in. And um, at that point, St. Jude was um, was planning to start a growth phase. They had a five-year growth phase where they were going to spend a billion dollars on new construction and double the size of their employee base. And most of those employees were going to be hired into the basic sciences rather than into patient care. Well, the HR department at that time was still pretty small. They had a recruitment group. Uh, they had a manager and two recruiters. But 
they had no one in the department that had a scientific background or, or really knew how to work with the scientists. So I guess in those 15 years or so at St. Jude, I had developed a reputation as being, even though I was a scientist, I guess I was a little bit more people-oriented maybe than some scientists are. So. Well, I think that they must have been impressed with your scientific capabilities as mm-hmm. well as your interpersonal skills. I think because so. in 1998, they recruited you to spearhead the hiring of new staff researchers. They did. I was the first scientific recruiter that was hired by, that was, that worked at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, and I was able to establish the campaign that that established St. Jude as a uh, employer of choice in the biotech community. St. Jude was known as the, a hospital for children, and if you were a nurse or a clinician, you knew that you wanted to work at St. Jude, but in the late 90s, Nobody knew that if you were a scientist, you wanted to work at St. Jude. I mean, unless you were a uh, a premier scientist, you knew about St. Jude. But if you wanted to be a research assistant or a technical person working in the scientific labs, which is which those people are vital to the science, you know, progressing, nobody really knew that they could do that. So we, I was able to help spread that news. How did you feel about leaving the lab? Because um, you mentioned you were getting a little restless, but I purposely wanted you to talk about your scientific career because it's definitely a big change to switch from doing lab research to doing the recruitment of scientific uh, staff researchers. Well, it is. It is. Um, and how were you my... sure that HR was the right fit for you? Because after all, going back to the bench would not have been a simple matter, being realistic in terms of how our society looks at things. It would have been very hard to go back to the bench. Absolutely. Um, It would have been very hard. Um, So you basically made up your mind you were going to close the door. I did. Yeah. And that that I'd like you to tell us about. I... I... I realized about myself that what was important to me in my job, uh, in my relationship with the people I work with, was that I'm, I would be doing something that would make a difference, that somehow I would, I would be valued, that whatever I was contributing would somehow change the way things would happen or it would, it would in a positive way, make the work better or we'd... And so in science, that was fascinating because we would discover things and do things that would change the, the way we looked at things. But after 15 years, I kind of was in a rut in the scientific community there. And I, I, had, I had advanced to the highest level I could advance. I was an associate scientist uh, and managing a laboratory for a, for a faculty physician, uh, clinician, and... Um, but I felt I was at the end. I was like, well, well now what do I do now? I've, I've worked for 15 years, and I've advanced up this career ladder, and now where do I go? What do I do now? I felt like I was sort of at a dead end. And I, and I knew some other researchers that, that, had, that were in that same boat as me and had been doing that same – they'd been in that same boat for 20 years. They were at their closer to retirement. And I thought to myself, I don't want to be – I don't see myself that way. I don't see myself 
managing a lab and then being 65 years old and retiring after I managed a lab. I wanted to do something else. And so when the HR folks contacted me, first they, they invited me to go with, uh, the employment manager invited me to go with her to Boston to a scientific career fair sponsored by Science Magazine because they wanted to see me in action, I guess. Well, that so was very smart because they wanted you to be part of a new culture, a culture mm-hmm. that you weren't familiar with. Am I correct, Virgil? Right, right. Um, so, so how did you feel when you went to this event? I felt totally at home. I was talking to people about science. I was talking to them about what, how great it is to work in science at St. Jude and what, how St. Jude how different it is for other research institutions and how working there is is probably the best place. If you like to do science, it is the best place in the world to work. And um, and then they offered me a job to be a scientific recruiter. That must have been after they observed you, am I correct? Yes, yes. They, yeah, they yes. observed you. That was very smart. Mm-hmm. That was very smart because I think quite often employers don't arrange opportunities to observe the potential new hires. And if they would do that, perhaps it would help to decrease the number of wrong fit hires. Mm-hmm. They were checking me for fit. And that's fabulous. That's exactly what they were doing. And, I, and, and on my part, they were allowing me to check it for fit, too. Well, that's what we need. I mean, mm-hmm. after all, in order to have the exquisite fit, we need a marriage between both sides, mm-hmm. the, the candidate-slash-employee and the employer. And, of course, moving into now a whole new profession, human resources, and I, as a, my scientific background was, was very helpful for me because I like to learn. I like to learn new things, and I approach things in a scientific way, and learn things in an orderly manner, and get my, you know, get all my lists together, <laughs> and categorize everything I'm trying to do. And so it worked very well for me because I, at the same time, I, I enjoy people, though. So I mixed those two together, and I think that's how I became so successful in human resources because I'm not so sure. Well, there's, this is the, and I even, once I went to Human Resources at St. Jude, I even told my old co-workers, I said, well, you know, this is the new HR. This isn't the old HR at St. Jude. This is the new HR, and I'm going to be part of it. Fast forward us two years later. Obviously, they were very impressed with you because they made you the manager of recruitment. Now you had staff and executive level positions to fill. Mm-hmm. As your search consultant, I introduced you to my right fit method. Quoting you from my book, Win Without Competing, you said, uh, Win Without Competing makes the many secrets of her proven method readily available for recruitment professionals, and believe me, they really work. While consulting with Dr. Barrow on numerous executive searches, I discovered how defining the sole right fit candidate for each open position could eliminate the need to hire on gut instinct from a wide pool of candidates. Tell us more about that. 
Well, before I started working with you as a, as a search consultant assisting us, I, a challenge I was facing, and at the time I thought it was because most of my customers were scientists, but later in my current job I find it's really that I think all executives are the same no matter what their background is. But, but these uh, scientists at the time I was working with who were scientist executives who were doing rec uh, recruiting for other executives or, or high-level director and management level positions, the difficulty was that they could, it was difficult for them to really define what they really were looking for. And since they couldn't define what they were looking for, it was difficult to present them with a candidate who met their real needs or who, who would fit their picture. So what you brought into the picture was your um, philosophy of establishing a blueprint for success when establishing a search at the very beginning. And uh, what I appreciate working with you and, and, and applied those principles even at times when I was doing the search myself was I would work with these executives and, and we would define clearly what is the blueprint of the ideal person that they want for this job. And that's what your principles helped us to do there at St. Jude. And, um, and executives that really understood that saw that as very valuable and saw that as, well, this is the way we actually save time in finding a person. Let's, let's think about it ahead of time. I think one way that a lot of executives go about a search is they just want to start seeing candidates, and then as they see the candidates, they start trying to figure out who do they, what kind of a candidate they really want. Well, and that's, that's because they're mess. comparing and contrasting, yeah. don't you think? In other yeah. words, using my right fit method, we're asking a different question. We're not asking who is the best candidate. We're asking who's the right fit. Mm. To, to determine that, we're evaluating the candidate against the blueprint. We're not comparing one candidate with another candidate. And I, I did have to help them, Arlene, because uh, their, their typical experience was in doing the contrast and compare method, which means they've got to see a lot of candidates. So and they can I sort of narrow one. them. They can, yes, and you are presenting one. And so I would tell them ahead of time. I said, I said I'm, I'm advising that we use Arlene Barrow for this search because it's a perfect search for her. And I said, but I have to tell you ahead of time now. She is going to work with us. She is going to establish a blueprint for success, which clearly identifies clearly clearly identifies what the candidate should have. Then she's going to go out and find that person that we said is the successful person, and then that's the person that we're going to want. And if we don't like that person, we better have a good reason why we don't, because the person is going to meet the blueprint for success. That's right. It's going to match the blueprint. That's yes. exactly right. They're going to match it. Right. Well, you know, we did have, um, you may remember a situation whereby uh, I presented a person who matched the blueprint, and then the high-level manager figured out that she needed to revise the blueprint. Mm -hmm. And I think when that happens, that's okay. The only thing is sometimes it would be easier if one could figure this out ahead of time. Yeah. 
but uh, yes, we did face that frustration at times, Arlene. We we did, we did, we definitely <laughs> did. We had a great time working together and, yes. and facing the frustration. Tell me, what impressed you about the right fit candidates that I presented to you? Well, I I think I guess what was most impressive is you know you truly went out and you presented a person who met exactly what we said was important to be successful in that job. Um, you didn't try to sell us someone that you felt could do the job. You gave us what we said we wanted. So that my candidates matched the blueprint. They matched the blueprint. Right. <laughs> so if, if, if we don't... If, there were times they didn't like the candidate, but that was because they didn't create the blueprint properly. <laughs> That's true. Let me ask you, would you be able to recognize, in other words, if I wasn't presenting the candidate to you, let's say uh, candidates were uh, those people that I had coached in terms of how to use my right-fit method or perhaps they read my book, When Without Competing, do you think you would be able to recognize a candidate who is implementing my right-fit method, and how would it impact on your hiring? I think I could recognize a candidate that I would suspect was using it or suspect had read your book. Um, and here's what I would probably, here's what I would see that would make me think that. If the candidate, first of all, the candidate would very clearly know what the job was that they were applying for and being interviewed for. And they would come to me prepared. And when I say prepared, I mean they would know what the job is. They would know the culture of my company. And they would be able to talk. I don't mean sell themselves, because I don't like it when a candidate tries to do a hard sell. But they would be able to talk reasonably and logically about how they, as a person, had the skills, knowledge, abilities, and experience to be the right person for me. I'd like you to step back a moment, Virgil, okay. to the sentence you said about you don't want them to sell. Okay. What do you mean, uh, because when I sent you the candidates, they presented themselves, they showed how they fit the blueprint. What do you mean by selling? I think that's a very important uh, bit of information that our listeners could learn from. Well, because uh, by selling, and when I use the term selling, what I mean, and I'm speaking of like a hard sell. If someone right. is trying, if a candidate's trying to sell me on them, they're because trying to. Because if they're to, matching, yeah, it's, it's, they're not. Con, they're not. They're. They're not. Um, they're not concentrating on the value of their match for my position. Instead, they're trying to push themselves on me. They're trying I've to got get it. me to accept that they're right for the job, even though they're not right for the job. That's when I say selling, because I don't, I don't consider it selling if a candidate is just, if a candidate is clearly talking and, and intelligently discussing 
their qualifications and how they are right for the job. That's not selling to me. To me, Good. selling is like, you know, the guy trying to sell the car that you don't want, you know. <laughs> and you're saying to basically focus in on using verbiage just to get the job without really clearly expressing the exquisite fit. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I think, you know, if someone is the right fit, they just simply have to explain it and show how they're the right fit. They don't have to they don't have to try to overwhelm me with the fact that they're the right fit, you know. I can get it, you know. <laughs> right. Also too, my method I think, though, Arlene, just one second. It, yeah. it also has to do with culture, because in the South, the hard sell is not accepted well. Now, that's interesting, Virgil. Could you talk about uh, different parts of the country and give us some insight? Because I, I think that we don't think enough about that. Because you just said about the South, uh, the hard sell is not something that's accepted well, can you kind of tell us more about that? Well, I think in the in the South, and what I see happening even here, because now I'm living in Atlanta instead of in Memphis, and Memphis, of course, is much smaller than Atlanta. Right, but we're keeping and, that for a surprise. And uh, but the, <laughs> but I'm still in the South. Where my point is, yeah, I'm no, still I'm, in the I'm South. teasing you. I'm teasing. And, you. and, and um, but um, what I have found regardless of where I lived in the South, that um, what I find managers talking about is behavior of the candidate. What turns the manager off most, the hiring manager, is the candidate's behavior. Now, of course, if the candidate is totally not qualified and totally has no knowledge and has no real experience, they're, they're going to you know, put them aside but they're not going to speak negatively about them. The ones they speak negatively about are the ones who were too pushy. And I guess maybe it's not considered pushy in other parts of the country. Maybe far up in the north, people are just more aggressive when they're selling themselves. But in the south, aggressiveness is considered like, mm, it sort of puts somebody off. Okay. I think you and I talked about this when some of your candidates were being presented Right, and because uh, some of them were coming from other parts of the country, and and uh, and I and, I, and I some of them from the East Coast, where yeah, that, the, the that, style that, is an assertive style. I mean, yeah. there's no question. Um, yeah. That's just the nature of the environment, mm -hmm. and um, and I think when someone is thinking about um, if someone wants to is trying to determine if they're the right fit not just for the job itself, but the right fit for the company and the culture of the company. Companies whose offices are in the South, their culture is different than companies whose offices are in, say, Washington State or uh, New York City or Los Angeles. The culture is just different. Um, and I think the, the person just has to think about that. And uh, Well, I also think they have to think, okay, they can behave a certain way for the interview, but that would also mean should they accept, should they get an offer and accept the position, they would actually have to change their behavior. And I think that it's important to think about 
whether one would want to change one's behavior to fit in. And I don't think that people think enough about that. What is your feeling about this, Virgil? I don't think they think about it. I don't think they realize how important it is. And I know I, I, that, I experienced that quite a few times with, with hires at St. Jude. Um, Tell us about the hires from the perspective, because I know that you hired people from all over the world. And, in fact, I placed someone with you from Canada. Mm-hmm. And remember the issues that we had with the customs, getting him through customs. Give us a little insight about what it was like to recruit the scientists from all over the world. Well, that was one, of the, that was one thing I really enjoyed about my job, because it gave me an opportunity to work with people from all these different countries. Um, St. Jude was so is so well known that people do want to work there, no matter where they're living at the time. They're hoping to be able to to work for St. Jude. Um, I it wasn't difficult. I mean, because we have, of course, people are people, and I have this theory, Arlene, that there's just only there's only a few different personalities. And it doesn't matter what language you speak or what country you live in or what color your skin is, you're going to be kind of one of those personalities or not, you know. And so it's that that personality uh, that seemed to work best at St. Jude was that personality where the person had a more caring, a caring way about them, um, a little more caution about the way they interact with others, and, of course, there are people like that no matter where they come from. Those people are out there. Um, when, when we hired someone who, who was aggressive and not thinking about how their behavior affected other people, uh, having to have things their own way, um, pushing things through rather than negotiating things, uh, matters through, <laughs> um, those individuals had difficulties. Did you counsel those people? Uh, actually, yes, because... I know, that's why I'm asking, <laughs> I know you counseled them. We had a uh, scientist, a premier scientist in his area that we recruited just a year or two before I, I left the HR department there, and um, this scientist uh, was brutal to one of the scientific recruiters, which, by the way, I was the first scientific recruiter, but then I was able to recruit others, and we expanded the department, and we eventually had three scientific recruiters, and then I was the manager, but so there were three recruiters with a scientific background, so... I'd like to think that, that was part of my influence on St. Jude, too. But well, back of course, to you also became the director as well. Yes, I did become the director eventually, too. But this individual was just, uh, he was a bully. And he just was brutal to the recruiter, had her crying. And, you know, and I, that's just not acceptable. It's not. Ex- I don't care how smart he is or, or how many degrees he has or how important his research is. St. Jude as an institution doesn't allow that behavior. And so I went to the employee relations director, who's also part of her HR department, and I said, "This, you know, he's, he's making her cry, and this is not the first time he's done it, and here's what he's saying to her. I mean, it's just brutal and mean the way he talks to her. And um, so the employee relations director and I went to him, sat down with him, and talked to him about his behavior. And I tell you one thing I said to him. I said, Dr., so-and-so, I just want to share with you that this type of behavior used to be here at St. Jude. 
but it is not any longer. It is not tolerated. It is not allowed here at St. Jude. And he looked at me, and he said, okay, all right, I understand. <laughs> so did did he actually change his behavior then, Virgil? I wouldn't say that he took off all his spots in one day. <laughs> <laughs> but you had some But impact. he got better. Well, that's encouraging. Mm-hmm. That's encouraging. Um, before we go on to another topic, I wanted you to comment about how you felt about St. Jude's mission uh, with respect to helping children and its significance to the world. Well, I can't say even... I can't say enough positive things about St. Jude Children's Research Hospital as an institution, as a hospital, as a, as a research institution. They're truly, even though St. Jude does list about 10 or 12 other research hospitals as part of its peer group, they still aren't like St. Jude. Um, St. Jude is the only one, even in its peer group, that's only focused on children that does that only is supported by donations um, that does not require its scientists to totally support themselves with their own grant money um, and does not charge any child or their family for their uh, treatment there's no other institution in the world like that um, it was a great vision that Danny Thomas had, and, and uh, everyone at St. Jude appreciates that his children, uh, his daughter and his two daughters and his and one son, have carried on that vision for him. And of course, Marla Thomas is one of the primary spokespersons now. She's at that hospital all the time, giving a lot of time to it. It's amazing. So I can't say enough for it, about it, and I I'm very proud that I was there for 25 years. What I think really impressed me was the fact that they figured out the right dosages of medicine to give the babies and the children, dosages that the pharmaceutical companies did not figure out. Mm-hmm. That's what really impressed me. And they're actually in, they're at the forefront in um, gene therapy and also in the use of... Um, um, their computer power there is amazing. They're they're analyzing the um, the gen- the genotype, the gene structure of the patients, and based upon that, they're also determining what the dosage should be. Because you know, if you give a certain dosage to one child, if you give the same dosage to five different children, even though they they're the same weight, same sex, and same disease of uh, generally speaking, they all are going to respond differently. And so it has to do with the genetic makeup of the individual child. So what they've really focused on a lot in the last few years is trying to identify what are the genetic makeups of these individual children and and which ones respond different ways so that they can do a genetic study before they start the treatment and determine, you know, what dosage is likely to work best with that child. It's amazing what they're able to do. And are they they're doing this for other institutions as well, am I correct? Well, all of their research is offered um everything they discover and everything they develop is offered free of charge to any any hospital or research facility in the world. That's outstanding. 
And mm-hmm. the, the protocols for treatment developed at St. Jude are, are distributed free of charge throughout the world. Well, Virgil, in 2008, you made the decision to leave St. Jude after working there for 25 years. How did you, did you feel as if you were getting a divorce? I've never had a divorce, but I think I know what it feels like. <laughs> um, I, it was very difficult. It was an extremely difficult decision to make. Um, was I think even when I was trying to make, when I was thinking about the decision, you and I were talking, Arlene, and you said something to me that um, that really made me think carefully. You said, you know, you have to think, Virgil, think about St. Jude. Even though I was talking to you about the thought of leaving, you said, I don't know that you can leave, Virgil, because, you know, you would be leaving it's like it is a family that you're leaving. And, of course, I'm very devoted to my own family, but you're right. I mean, your work is all, there's, that's a family, too. And you said, you know, even if the family's dysfunctional, that doesn't mean it's easy to leave it. So, and no, you're it, so right. You're so right. Yeah, no, I mean, it's true because, I mean, look at all the passion you exhibited during our conversation uh, towards St. Jude. That's why I asked as if you, you know, how you felt about leaving. And how did my right fit method help you in your decision-making process? Well, I think that, um, again, it goes back to, what sort of fit am I looking for? And that's how it helped me. What am I looking for in, in my job? And um, when I left the research labs, I was looking for an opportunity to make a difference. And I found that when I went to HR. And I, 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 I'm happy, or I'm proud that there are things at St. Jude. There are ways things are done in recruitment, and there, and there are, are things I, I, I like. I, I feel that I was part of making things better and changing things about the way things happen there. Well, you created uh, with regard new to systems. employees in what, what, Arlene? You created new systems. Yes, yes. I think yes. that's what's important. I mean, you really went out of your way to, to create new systems to mm-hmm. make things really work well. But I was at the point, this is where I, I, look, I thought about the right fit and was re- looking at your book and trying to think about this um, uh, blended blueprint of what would be, my, what, what's, what is going to be a happy life for me? You know, what job am I looking for and balancing that, of course, with my family? Um, I was at a point at St. Jude where I didn't feel I was going to make a difference anymore. That's why I, I was thinking about leaving. It's not that I, 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 I mean, I could have stayed on at St. Jude in my role there, and for I mean, until I, you know, until I'm 85 years old, I'm sure they would have <laughs> let me stay. Um, they, I, 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 I loved being there. I loved the people. I loved working with them. But somehow, I, that I have that desire still to have a challenge of think, how can I make something better. And I think that I had 
the realm of influence that I could have had at St. Jude, I think I had pretty much accomplished everything I could accomplish. And I'm proud of what was accomplished, but I, I, I just, I didn't see that there was a lot of more opportunity anymore. And I did, I was, I had been promoted to a director level position and it wasn't likely, you know, there weren't any, there weren't going to, I didn't expect to have any VP pres, uh, VP positions opening anytime soon there, so. Well, I think, I think you were wise to recognize that you were ready for a change. Mm-hmm. And in your new position at Piedmont in Atlanta, after eight months, you were promoted from director of recruitment to corporate director of recruitment. What do you think, or why do you think you were promoted, and how have your responsibilities changed? Well, uh, as I when I joined Piedmont, I was... Uh, initially responsible as director of recruitment for their flagship hospital, which is called Piedmont Hospital, and it's in Buckhead in Atlanta, Georgia. The um, corporate umbrella is called the Piedmont Healthcare Corporation, and they um, actually oversee uh, five hospitals, four hospitals and a physician practice management group. So five entities are overseen by them, and and also a, a research institute. Uh, Piedmont Heart Institute. So, um, and initially I was responsible officially for Piedmont Hospital's recruitment, but I I was hired to be the facilitator, advisor, recruitment expert of sorts for the whole system, even though I was not in you know directly directing the recruitment groups at the other entities. But during my first months, I made the effort to get out to those other entities to develop relationships. In fact, my old boss at St. Jude considered, you know, of her, because you know, she liked to have people in her realm that had different skills. And she would say that my skill was in relationship building. And others in her department had other skills that maybe I didn't have as good. But I had that one. I'll, ex- I'll have to say I have the relationship <laughs> building one. And uh, so well, you have I lots went of out. skills, Virgil. Okay. <laughs> so, so I went out to develop my relationships with these other entities because I think you know I wanted them to see me not as someone who was had moved into town to to take them over or to push them around or make them do things my way. But I wanted to let them to see that I'm, I'm here to help them. I'm here to make their job better because I'm here to provide them. I can use whatever knowledge I have. I can share it with them about things that I've faced at my other job. You know, I'm sure they face similar things. Let me let's work it out together and see how we can solve these problems together. And so I there was a project I was given by my boss, my new boss at Piedmont, who's the VP of HR there, to develop a. Uh, a consistent way of determining whether a person was eligible for hire into the Piedmont system based upon professional references, a criminal background check, employment verification, et cetera, et cetera. It wasn't being done consistently throughout the entities. Some were checking some things, some were checking other things, and and there was no consistency about how 
the results were analyzed. You know, some people were letting some people get hired for whatever, and other entities would never let them get hired for that. So our employment attorney said, you know, we need to be consistent here because also we hire within, you know, we hire from each other within the entities, and we needed to be consistent about the way we were originally hiring people. Since that person may eventually get transferred to another facility, we wanted to make sure the criteria were consistent. And so I didn't write uh, up a, uh, a new practice document and then just send it out and say, okay, I've come from Memphis, Tennessee, St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, and this is the way we did it, and now we're all going to do it this way because I'm here and you have to do it this way. Instead, I went out, I, I had my template document I made up at the beginning, and I went out and face-to-face we worked through this document from one entity to the other. And each time I had one of my visits and went through the document with them, I made my notes, made my notes, and made a new document. Then I moved on down the chain to the next one and made a new document after that one. Until in the end, and this was a several-month period of time, but in the end, when the document that was finally presented, it wasn't a document that I created for the group. It was a document we all created together. So it, it... Everyone was on board with it. It was the right fit for everyone. I didn't make anyone, I didn't make the entities fit into my fit, but we all decided it to, on it together, on how, what do we think is the right thing, and then let's, let's all do this together. So, and I, I believe then, because the, I guess the entities, the recruiters of the different entities um, must have, and the recruitment managers or the HR directors of the other entities, must have reported back to my boss that things were going well with me. <laughs> so he did decide to to sort of change my title over to corporate director. I don't um, the I'm still a facilitator and an advisor, but I'm 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 now the corporate director, so I'm officially part of that corporate umbrella. But. Um, well, I guess the responsibilities will be gradually folded in. Am I correct, Virgil? Well, we'll see how that goes. I mean, because we're we're I'm I'm still you know we're still all a big team working together. Well, that's I think key. Mm-hmm. Um, am I correct that you are in the right fit position right yes. now? I'd like to say I'm making a difference, <laughs> <laughs> which that's is sure. which is key in terms of what you want to do. Yes. Uh, You know, what's I think very interesting, and that is nowhere or at no point in time during the course of our conversation have you mentioned anything about money. You continue to talk about your desire to make a difference, and the passion really is echoed through the verbiage and your emotional responses. I I did I did feel that you know money was a factor but it certainly was not the main factor. Um I would not have taken the wrong fit job just because they were paying me more money because I know that that would not make me happy. Um in fact I looked at a job before I looked at the Piedmont job and and interviewed for it. Um for a recruitment director position that was not in the 
healthcare industry and not in the academic world and not in a hospital at all. And uh, I didn't get that job, and as I look back at it, I am so glad they didn't offer me that job. That's interesting. I'm so glad Um, they didn't offer it to me. When you switched from St. Jude to Piedmont, you basically left the environment of an academic medical center. How did you feel about that? Because there's a big difference between the environment that you are currently in and your past environment. Well, I would say that was probably the hardest thing to leave uh, because I really enjoy the academic, I loved the academic environment. I loved that I'm working with people that are scientists in a sense, like professors. You know, we didn't uh, deliver any, we didn't confer degrees at St. Jude, but it was still considered an academic institution because there were a lot of postdocs, graduate students from other universities and all that were there getting their degrees at their sponsoring university, but yet they were doing their research at St. Jude. Um, it was that was a hard decision, but I just that that was where I really had to think carefully about the right fit was because I was leaving a lot behind. So I had to be sure that the job I was going to was the right fit, not just for me, but also it was a move away from the city that I had grown up in and lived in all my life. Um, It was the city that my son had lived in all his life and that my wife had been in most of her life and that all my wife's family, her four sisters, her brother, her parents, her uh, nieces and nephews were all living in that city and still all live in that city. So it was a big change. Well, tell us more about the impact of the move on your family. Well, my wife knew that um, that I was at this time in my career where I needed a change. So she's a very um, stabilizing factor, always has been a very stabilizing factor on me, <laughs> uh, uh, for me. And um, I had sort of looked at jobs. You know, I had applied for a couple things here and there on the Internet, and uh, some search agents had talked to me about different jobs. And um, and the way what my wife would always say to me was, when you have an offer, come to me, and then we'll talk about it. <laughs> she didn't really want to. She didn't want to worry about it unless I actually was going to get an offer. Well, I, well, I mean that's a practical approach, yeah. and I guess at the same time she was being supportive in terms of telling you that it was fine with her that you were looking around. I think that was very supportive. And she uh, she let me know that. She was not really, she really didn't want to move to the East Coast, West Coast, or to the Northwest. Ah. And um, So she wanted to stay in the South. She wanted to stay in the South. And so when this opportunity came up at Atla- in Atlanta, when I first talked to her about it, I could tell. She was, okay, well, the location is, is okay. So so let's see what the offer is going to be. <laughs> okay, all right. And I'm gathering you told her that the position was something you were in you wanted. Yes, we talked a lot about that. She wanted to be sure, you know, cuz she knew what things what certain things that made me unhappy about my other job and we talked a lot about was I, you know, really was I being careful and thinking carefully cuz 
I didn't want to just run away from something. I wanted to make sure I was going to the place I needed to go to. And so you had a home Mm -hmm. in Memphis, Mm -hmm. and how did you handle that home? Because I know you purchased another home in Atlanta. How did all that work? Well, and again, part of the, the... the job, and, and this, even though what I'm going to talk about now is sort of like it's kind of talking about money, but really it's talking about the, the culture of the company and their desire to have me and do they think I'm the right fit. Because I, I let them know, you know, that in order for me to make this move successful for me and my family, there were some things that they would have to help me with as far as with some temporary housing and things like that because it, I didn't know when I would be able to sell the house. And there wasn't, you know, I couldn't really afford to have a mortgage payment in Memphis. And then, well, I needed to sell our home in order to buy something in Atlanta. I didn't want to end up in a, you know, with me renting and living in Atlanta and my family is still in Memphis. And, you know, I just didn't want to get into that. So I just, uh, they were they were generous about some, a temporary housing plan for me um, that, uh allowed me to live in an apartment five minutes from my new job. And uh, my wife stayed back in Memphis, and she had her own business that she needed to close out. So we made a, like a six-month plan uh, during which we, you know, the house got, we did things on the house at the very beginning. Actually, my wife did. She was wonderful about all the things, all the hard work she did. So she was very supportive. I love the word plan. <laughs> I can't I can't tell you how much I love the word plan. Yes. It was uh, a plan to, to get here and be be here in the in a situation that would be successful for us. Um but the uh the house did sell and um we were able then to find a property here in the Atlanta area that was and again it we wanted we decided, you know, if we make this move to Atlanta where we live has got to be the right fit for us. We didn't want to live out in the far suburbs, and then I would have to drive in an hour and a half every day to work. I was like, I'm not going to do that. I mean, I'll, I'll just, I'm not, I'm not going to take the job and make a move if I have to do that. So even when we were checking things out, we made certain that there were some things in our price range within an area, within a circumference of the, of where I would work, so that I could be at work. On a, I could drive in on a city street and be at work in 20 minutes or less. And Again, another it. blueprint. And we did it. We found, um, in fact, the strange thing is when I came, when my wife came with me for the second interview, which was the first time she had come with me, we spent a day sort of looking around, and we found a townhouse for sale in a little community 20 minutes from the hospital, and we thought, and my wife said, well, you know, I don't know if we can really afford this, but when I thought about coming to Atlanta and living in a townhouse, this is what I pictured. Hmm. This I pictured it being like this. And at that time, of course, I still hadn't gotten used to the Atlanta sticker shock on houses, so <laughs> I thought that it was, like, real expensive, so... <laughs> Well, that's understandable. But I mean, you went from we were a smaller city to a big city. Yes. Um, 
And so then we just kept looking over the next few months, next few months, and then we eventually sold our home in Memphis. And then as I, uh, the more I looked, the more it became clear that that little townhouse community we originally looked at was actually one of the best values <laughs> that could be found that was in the circumference that we were looking at. And so what we ended up doing then with that townhouse, that particular one we saw, sold shortly after we looked at it. But um, we bought a different townhouse that came on the market in the same community. So she's, she's living in the community that she said was what she pictured would be her Atlanta townhouse. Wonderful. Tell us about your son, Christopher. How did the revocation affect him? Well, it, it, um, it's, really, it's, it's actually affected him in a very positive way, but it, 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 it hit him in, very, in several different stages. He wasn't, uh, I don't know that he was real crazy about it at the beginning because at that time he was involved, in a, he was engaged to be married and was already making plans to move to Nashville. So he kind of had thought he would see us always living in Memphis where he could come back and visit us and his other family members, his aunts and uncles and his cousins. But he was okay with us going to Atlanta. But then again, he was planning to move away from Memphis anyway and go to Nashville. Um, and interestingly, I shared the, your book, When Without Competing, with him because his fiance was having trouble deciding on a career. So she read the book, and hopefully it helped her in deciding on a career. I know it did. I haven't been able to talk to her about it because later, well, I used the book also with him because I, I wasn't sure if he was really thinking carefully about if he had chosen the right person for his right fit. Aha, uh-huh, for a right fit spouse. <laughs> so I just, I encouraged him to read the book, and I gave him some highlights from it with regard to the blended blueprint. And I said, you know, just, you, this is an idea here from Arlene where you think about this blended blueprint and you think about what it is, what's important to you in a marriage. What's important to you in your family life? What kind of a person is important to you? And what are that person's qualities now? Are those the qualities that are the qualities you're looking for? Do that, does that fit your blended blueprint? And I said, and you know what? I would ask her to do the same thing about you. So I wasn't pointing any fingers. <laughs> right, right. No, I understand. <laughs> but then when the time came that we were actually moving to Atlanta, and I think that's probably what sort of motivated him to make a decision. And about the time we were moving to Atlanta, he still hadn't gotten married yet. He was supposed to get married. He should have gotten married, actually. He was planning to get married just this uh, past October. So in... Um, Late July, my wife was moving to Atlanta so the because the, the house had sold, and um, he that motivated him to make a decision, and he decided that she was not she did not fit his blended blueprint. That's excellent. And he he broke off that engagement and moved here to Atlanta um, because his desire his right fit job for him. He's thought about it carefully because he's tried a lot of different things. He was in college for a while, and then he's, like most young people, they 
it's, it's hard for them to, he's 25, and it's hard for them to decide what it is their life's going to be, uh, what sort of career is right for them. But he's made a decision that he wants to be a fire paramedic. He's already an emergency medical technician. And he, in Memphis, to, be, to get into the fire departments, it's just very difficult. You have to be a cousin or a friend or whatever of some fireman. And, and I kept telling him, I said, you know, Atlanta has been great for me. It's going to be great for your mom because she's going to be able to, she was going to go back to school here and do some training for her career, further her career that would have been difficult for her to get in Memphis. And I said, there's just so many opportunities here. He said, well, what do you mean, opportunities? I said, well, I bet there's fire departments right now here that are looking for people. He said, well, are you sure? What are you, are, uh, and so I looked at about the Internet. I found two fire departments that were, that were in an application process. So huh. he applied from Memphis, and within a week he was actively an applicant for both of those fire departments. Now, oh, in Memphis wonderful. he had spent years, years trying to get treated trying to get uh, attention from a fire department. But in, in Atlanta, within a week, both of them were considering him. So he went ahead and moved here. He stayed on in the application process in, with both company, both fire companies, and uh, was he received an offer from one and probably would have gotten off, was about to get an offer from the other one, but he took the first offer because that was actually the one he kind of wanted the, the most. And tonight, Arlene, is his first shift as a fireman. Oh, it's wonderful. He's finished all of his training, and his first shift tonight is tonight. Fabulous. Well, I have to say this has been a wonderful conversation, Mm -hmm. and I would love to invite you back to talk about what suggestions you have for those who are in the job search mode, given that we have 10 million people who are currently unemployed. I hope you'll be available to chat with me again soon. I look forward to it very much, Arlene. Thank you so much. You were a delightful guest. Thank you. I've enjoyed it, too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Please join me again on Wednesday, December 17th at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. The question is, what is career passion and can you find it? My guest will be Dr. Deborah Schlein, physician, entrepreneur, and author of nonfiction and fiction. Her latest novel, an international thriller, Rabbit in the Moon, was just named Best Books 2008 Awards Finalist by USA Books. Learn how Dr. Schlein's passion propels her to succeed in both her professional and personal life. During this holiday season, Give the gift of the Right Fit Method to you, your friends, and relatives. Capital Books, the publisher of Win Without Competing, is currently offering Win at $9.95 until the Kindle is edition 
is available on Amazon. Feel free to call Kathleen Hughes at 1-800-758-3756 to order Win Without Competing. To contact me directly, call 310-441-5305 or email me at drbarrow at winwithoutcompeting.com. That's D-R-B-A-R-R-O at winwithoutcompeting.com. Until next time, Remember this trigger tip. Change your mindset to the right fit method and you will change your life. Goodbye for now from Dr. Arlene, career coach one and author, Win Without Competing. (laughs) 